It's Dr. Stu's Podcast with me, Dr. Stuart Fishbein, your host, and my protege, Bliss Young, who's with us today. We are back for podcast number 131. Uh, no title yet. We don't title them till afterwards. <laughs> but uh, for now, it's podcast 131. Could be our best podcast ever. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us at drstuespodcast.com. You can find us on the banner on my page at birthinginstincts.com. You can find us on Facebook. Like us, share us, do all those sorts of things. You can email me at askdrstew at gmail.com. And you can email bliss at... Birthingbliss. Oh, you know what? I have a new one. So bliss at birthingbliss. Oh, my God. I know. You have a new email? I got rid of... Well, I still have Hotmail, but I'm more official, right? It sounds better. So say it again so people get that that down. Because we are going to do some letters today. We we got a couple of... um, We got a lot of letters the last couple of weeks. We've been sort of off for about seven or eight weeks. We haven't done a podcast. So I picked a couple of of good ones. Yeah. Yeah. So bliss, my name is with a Y, B-L-Y-S-S, at birthingbliss.com. Great. Great. So at birthingbliss.com. That's right. Okay. Bliss.birthingbliss.com. <laughs> right? Bliss at. <laughs> yeah. Well, great. Moving on. Well, that, yeah, that's great. So uh, how have you been? How have I been? Um, oh, I forgot I was like, what are you that. doing? <laughs> John, John and I worked really hours and hours on hours of Putting this together, we got Beyonce on the line. Beyonce, and thank you so she's much. She's singing your birthday. Happy Aww, birthday, Bliss. Thank you. That's very sweet. Thanks, yeah. John. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. I'll shut up so people can hear Beyonce. Yay! <laughs> All right, Thanks, you guys. That's, a, that's as high as our tech ability goes here at the Doctor Stu's <laughs> podcast. We. Dubbed in a song, so that's pretty cool. I heard I'm that pretty the, good somebody that. likes my laugh, and I was like, what does my laugh sound like? So now every time I laugh... You know who I'm you remind me of? It. You know who I was listening to recently, no. and I think that you do a great job, um, is... I was listening to Howard Stern <laughs> recently. <laughs> you okay. Of Howard Stern? No, of, oh. of Robin. <laughs> oh, okay. I was like, dang. She chimes in at the right time. She's really supportive of him. <laughs> you know, she doesn't give him crap. She's like a great sidekick. Mm. So... Every, you know, person really needs a sidekick. Everybody, every Lone Ranger needs a Tonto. Every Batman needs a Robin. And I, and I have my Bliss, and I'm wow. really happy. Aw, yeah, Who could have a better name than Bliss? Yeah. So let's catch up a little bit on what we've been doing. Um, you know, because we haven't, we haven't uh, done a podcast for about almost two months, I think. And uh, have you done any traveling at all? Did you, get, did you get out of town? I thought yeah, you were supposed to get out of town. Yeah, in September, I went, um, went up to see my mom for a little bit and um, in Northern California, Eureka. And is that where the fires were, or is that not where the fires mm, were? Sort of. More like towards Redding, okay. so a little south of her. Um, and then I came back, and I was supposed to go to Mexico, but I realized at the last minute that my passport had expired. Uh, so I got it pronto in the mail so that I could have it for India, which I'm doing in November. So, um, if any listeners want to be Bliss's sidekick, um, Bliss needs a sidekick, <laughs> someone who can remind her that her passport's about to expire. I got an assistant. You do have an assistant. Her name is Jessica. She's great. Have I met her? You have not met her yet. Does she have an email? Um, <laughs> is it Jessica at birthingbliss.com? She's, she's info at birthingbliss.com, but I'm oh, sure that. Jessica has her own email too. Yeah. Did I say you could reach me at info at birthinginstincts.com now we're really getting confusing to people 
<laughs> all right, because that's the way people reach me is info at birthinginstincts.com. I don't know. It was all about me We begin. Yeah, well, it is about you. All right, so the whole you'll podcast. Be, you'll the, be my sidekick. The, the title of the podcast is <laughs> Bliss's Podcast, number one. <laughs> number one. Um, so well, anyways, I had, to, uh, I had to change my plans completely, so I went to see one of my favorite, favorite um, artists, Brandi Carlisle. And we ended up going to see her in San Luis Obispo, and it was a tiny 750-seat theater, and I was in the, the best. second row. Oh, it was amazing. It was amazing. And then uh, spent some time near the beach and went to a cabin in Santa Barbara and um, did some wine tasting in San Ynez. So I had a nice, lovely time off call. We need that in the summer. That's what's great, yeah, for, that's yeah. what's great about uh, August. August is a good month for doing those sorts of things. Except nowadays they start school so early. I know. That uh, in California sometimes, I, some kids were back at school on August 11th, which was ridiculous. He was back on the... 17th, yeah, I think. it's a ridiculous, it is ridiculous. Uh, thing to do. Well, I got to go see a play, and I have to rave about it because um, I don't know if the guy will ever do it again, but it was a one-man show, and it was at the Annenberg in Beverly Hills. Mm. And I just randomly saw it. I was looking for things to do in L.A., and it came up on the Internet. And it was a one-man show where the guy um, uh, did, a, did a one-man show on Beethoven. Oh, really? And he's also done Gershwin and uh, Irving Berlin, and he's fantastic. He is absolutely fantastic. one of the best... Shows everything. First of all, I love the music. I mean, I love classical music. Yes. You know that. That's yeah. sort of why we use soundtracks. Show for our, tunes. Yeah, too, you like. yeah. Well, more than show tunes, it's music. It's Mu- soundtracks. Uh, yeah, that, soundtracks. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, show tunes are like what you get at, uh, you know, when you have a thing like that movie that came out, which was pretty good, by the way, The Greatest Showman. I thought. Yeah. If we saw that, did you see that movie? Yeah, it was entertaining. About P.T. Barnum. It was but pretty they good. say it was not really accurate. That he was kind of a jerk. Uh, yeah. They made him seem like a better guy than he was. Yeah, he was only a slightly, uh, he was only a partial dick <laughs> to his wife and kids and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, he was probably an egomaniac, but who cares? Is any history, whether it happened 100 years ago or happened today, accurate? I mean, you can't read anything. I mean, look, we're going to go through some stuff today, some articles and things. And, you know, how do you know to believe, what to believe with, uh, from anybody, even reliable sources? And it's not only not, it's not only what's published out there that that's it's also what they refuse to publish or what isn't printed, you know. So you you don't even know anything anymore when you with stuff. But the show at the Annenberg was great, and that's where we're we're on a high right now. So we're talking good stuff. And then uh, guess what starts next week? Hockey. 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 <laughs> Yo, man, and the uh, and my and the hated rivals just signed a really good player. So now we're really we're really going to hate them even more. Oh, really? Who's the rivals? The Sharks. Uh, where from are they San from? Jose. San Jose. Boo. <laughs> boo, boo. John, boo? Boo. Okay. <laughs> um, on my birthday, by the way, I went and saw um, that uh, Beautiful, which is the Carol King musical based on her life. And No, I don't know anything about that, but I uh, loved Carol King. Oh, you should go see it before it's gone. It's at the Pantages, and the woman who plays her is amazing yeah um but does, she does wrote carol king a still, lot uh, of songs does carol king still perform sometimes i don't know you know she lives like up in montana or something like yeah. that i think i don't know but her, uh, she her, was one of my favorites she and james taylor did some stuff together it was fantastic yeah so you'd love it it was really really good all right pantages mm-hmm. the pantages theater all right yeah right is that is it a gift or is it just a suggestion <laughs> no it's not your birthday <laughs> i already saw it all right all right all right, all right. okay <laughs> Uh, let's see what else is happening. Uh, I'm spending some time with my kids. My daughter's back up. She graduated college. So she's back up in L.A. And we, we got to do a fun th- event this week. Um, you know, I live downtown on a tall building. And mm-hmm. and they have uh, Resident Appreciation Week. And on 
Tuesday, we got to go uh, up on the helipad. Really? And take pictures on the helipad on top oh. of the on the 54th floor of uh, the Ritz-Carlton building. So that was kind of fun. And, and they even they even had a drone that the drone would fly out. It was it was really freaky. I'm, I'm heights don't, heights get to me, <laughs> especially when you at one end of the helipad there's nothing. On the other end of the pad there's part of the top of the building. But one of the helipad you look down, it, you know you can't even close. I it freaks me out Too totally. Much. Yeah. And uh, so they have this drone that's flying out, hovering out there, and it's like. I wouldn't even want to be the drone. <laughs> but they take a picture so you can see us with the name of the building in, in front of it. Oh, that's and cool. And I just got the disc today, so I got to pull it. We got to put it up and pull it up. Maybe we'll use one of those pictures for our That's our that's podcast. great. I'd love to see it. It was it was it was a lot of fun. And we went out for dinner and uh, had a good time. So, it's great to have her back. Okay, so I got some letters here, and I think mm-hmm. we start with those because I really also wanted to just put uh, uh, put in a mildly shameless plug for my new blog, which is, uh, you can find that at birthinginstincts.com. And at the top, you click on the blog section and it goes right to it. There's also a link to it on the Facebook page uh, for both uh, the, the podcast and Dr. Stuart Fishbein OBGYN Facebook page. But it talks about the um, New England Journal article about induction at 39 weeks. Mm, boo. <laughs> boo, boo. <laughs> the sharks and the sharks 39. and thirty nine weekers. Oh my God, same thing. Okay, so well, this for, this letter though is from um, oh man, this is the print is so small. This is from Stephanie, and Stephanie lives in Williamsport. All right, and I'm going to have to put my glasses on. Do you want me so, to read it? <laughs> can you read it? I don't know. Probably. No, you know what? I'll read it. Okay. I'll read it. <laughs> we should be on video right now. It's yeah. pretty funny. <laughs> All right. So let's see if I can find the right focal point here. All right. Um, She says, hi, Dr. Stu. My name is Stephanie, and I am an avid listener to your podcast. In fact, I love it. Thank you, Stephanie. Yeah. (laughs) I'm feeling good right now. I'm getting the oxytocin rush as I read this. (laughs) All right. I am also a labor and delivery nurse at a hospital in central Pennsylvania. Boo. Oh, well, I mean, <laughs> no, we're not booing. It's Pennsylvania's like, uh, on the boo list now. No, no, the hospital. <laughs> oh, the hospital. During your latest podcast, Bliss was sharing an experience she had. Wait, and experience and a client of hers had in the hospital regarding IV pitocin. My question is, what do you do if anything at the home birth to try to prevent a postpartum hemorrhage? It is a very big topic right now on my unit, and I am curious as to know how it is managed at home. Thank you for all you do for home, for mom and babies. Keep doing what you are doing. P.S. We had a surprise breach vaginal delivery at the other, at the other week, and I was not so secretly cheering it on. Yay. <laughs> Yay, Stephanie. Okay, so what do we do? Well, what I want, where I would start with yeah. is what we don't do. Correct. Right. And, and, um, a lot of the trying to get the placenta to come before it's ready, I think causes more bleeding than necessary. Um, I also think that um, when a woman has been given Pitocin um, to augment her labor and to move her labor along, that it blocks the normal flow of hormones, which sometimes can lead to... Atney. Atney is, you know, the more... Um, clinical description, but it also it, it interferes with the normal flow of ha- hormones being able to take their own course, which can affect bleeding. A woman who also feels unsafe and, unwa- and watched can affect that as well. Um, 
But then you want to get into the actual medications and stuff that well, we do give yeah. if we see more bleeding than Here's, we're here's what with. I wrote to her. By the way, that's why I have Bliss as my sidekick because she is brilliant. Mm. Um, I wrote that at home birth, let's see. Um, oh, my God, my glasses suck. <laughs> uh, but, but at home, oh, yeah, you can read that. Just, just start right there. But. Um, but at home births, we carry Pitocin and misoprostol for postpartum use only. Some carry methogen as well. Many of the midwives also have homeopathy available. I think there is less hemorrhage at home, partly because we have not been pummeling the uterus with induction meds for hours. It's one of my favorite hours. words, by the way. <laughs> pummeling. When you think about it with a, with a, with a uterus, too, it's, it's quite graphic. Um, meds for hours, as it is often the case in the hospital. We wait for the placenta to spontaneously separate, and I, for one, tend to be fairly aggressive with bimanual massage of the fundus right after. We pay attention to bleeding and continue to check the fundus in the immediate postpartum hours. Yeah, and one of the things that I've added to my, uh, uh, oh boy, what's the word? Uh, repertoire? Mm-hmm. Uh, is uh, transanemic acid. Do you know what that's called? You know what that no. is? Yeah, it's a it's a anti-fibrinolytic. It inhibits plasminogen uh, becoming plasmin. It it prevents clots from breaking down, mm-hmm. and it's been it's been now approved for um, postpartum hemorrhage. There's so a there's a drug that's used for for menorrhagia for women that have heavy periods called Lysteta, and Lysteta is is it's hard for me to pronounce this word. It's transamic acid, T R A N. E-X-M-I-C, acid. Mm-hmm. Um, I carry it now. It's for IV use only. Mm-hmm. It's perfectly safe for breastfeeding and for... It's not a hormone, and it actually works really well to, for hemorrhaging. So haven't used it yet, oh, okay. but I but I ordered... A, I carry it in my, uh, in my birth kit, and probably nine-tenths of them will expire before I ever <laughs> use one of them, but... You know, Where did you find out about that? I saw it in an article. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then I, and I, I, I bounced it off some other people. Okay. Um, other midwives have mentioned it to me from other parts of the country uh, in a lot of the correspondence that I'm doing with. So, Stephanie, that's what we really do. We're basically, we, we don't see a lot of postpartum hemorrhage. I would say how many, what, a couple percent maybe? Yeah. Um, I'd say less than 5% do we And probably 1% or less of women ever get transferred for postpartum hemorrhage. Again, we're dealing with a population of low-risk women. And even though I deal with twins which does have the disadvantage of the over-distended uterus and the more likelihood of, you know, larger placental mass means larger, you know, wounds on the uterus and more likely to atony. We, we haven't really seen um, people needing to be transferred. I have never had to have anyone to get transfused. Even the one woman that we transferred in all the years that I've been doing this ended up just getting stabilized with no transfusion. So we haven't had that. So can I say it's the cherry-picked patients? Can I say it's the model by which we care for people? Can I say it's the patients that we show them? Can we say it's the non-use of tocolytics like uh, Pitocin? Not tocolytics, that's the wrong word. Um, uterine stimulants like Pitocin. Um, the fact that we don't beat up the uteruses for hours and hours and hours. Um, maybe we just don't see it as much as you guys see it in the hospital. Yeah, I mean, I think it always, you know, I'm always going to go back to respecting um, the beautiful design of our bodies and we're there to step in for that small percentage um, that actually needs us. And the more that we interfere, there's a ripple effect, you know? And so we just got to st- stop meddling. Right. So I think what I would, what I would share with the nurses on labor and delivery unit is, is the fact that, you know, pe- they're always concerned about what if this happens at home and the stuff. And, and you know, we're prepared for that. 
you know, and we do carry IV medication. We took, I mean, IVs. We do carry mm-hmm. medicine to give IVs, but we just don't see it as much because of the model by which women are cared for. Yes, right. agreed. Okay, so here's another letter in bigger print, by the way, which is really, <laughs> really good for help, me. I can, help us out. I can here. read this one. <laughs> All right, this is from um, Robin in North Dakota. So we've oh, had yeah. Pennsylvania, North Dakota. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm glad I have at least one listener in North Dakota. It's good to know. <laughs> Uh, good morning from North Dakota. I've meant to write to say thank you for your podcast for a long time, but never have. I am one. I'm one of you. Oh, I'm one of your. I've listened to every podcast groupies. You drive a lot of miles between clients in North Dakota, and your podcast helps that to be a productive time. Oh, that's sweet. You know, there's a lot of other great podcasts out there. There are. Right. You know a couple. Yeah, our friend Alex just came out with an What's amazing... What's the title for podcast? Under the Hood. Under the Hood, and then yeah. there's the Birth Hour, and then you have uh, Kristen Piscucci's podcast. What about the one at home with the couple that had home Yeah, birth? yeah, there's just a mm-hmm. bunch of them. So, mm-hmm. Elliot uh, Berlin. If you're driving long hours like I do or you do in North Dakota, they're, they're always good to listen to those sorts yeah. of things. Um, as a doula, I love your birth information, but I'm finally writing in as a new grandma to be with a... Grandma to be with a question about my daughter's pregnancy. She's doctoring with an OB and plans to give birth in a hospital. North Dakota has very few midwives of any kind, and even fewer home birth midwives. For a little background. Boo. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, North Dakota is such a great state. Otherwise, though, you know, I've I've been there. You know, because I had relatives that lived in Fargo. Oh, really? Fargo. Yeah, Fargo. Right. Yeah. Well, Minneapolis, Fargo, it's sort of the same thing, isn't it? I don't know. <laughs> it is. I trust you. <laughs> uh, we have a great hospital with doctors that really seem to respect women and birth. They're not perfect, but I've loved working with most of all of them. My daughter chose not to do the glucose screening and instead did a blood sugar check four times a day for a week. She eats very little, by the way, of sweets and just couldn't make the idea of consuming more sugar in one drink than she does in a week work in her mind. She's smart. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's perfectly fine. We do that mm-hmm. here all the time. We mm-hmm. try to make, I have very few people, I can't remember the last time someone took the, uh, the bottle of the 50 grams of glucose. Yeah. I just can't remember it. Her doctor supported her in the alternative method. Very nice. Yes. I'll also note that she has had no sugar in her urine and no symptoms of sugar issues aside from being tired often, which I don't think is a sugar issue. That's <laughs> having a baby, baby issue. oven issue. <laughs> her numbers were all good every day, except for her fasting numbers first thing in the morning, which ranged from 95 to 115. And she had one at 130. The doctor had her test her fasting an, for an additional week with the same results. After the second week, my daughter made a couple of minor diet tweaks, adding more healthy fats and swapping out refined gluten-free products for whole grain options. Her fasting numbers went down to 80 to 95. So it's amazing that what you can do just by looking at a diabetic diet or, you know, or seeing a nutritionist to control your sugars. And these were all within the normal range. She had already made appointments with a dietitian and diabetes educator and was officially labeled gestational diabetic before she made those changes. I attended those appointments with her, hoping that since everything was good now, maybe she wouldn't need to continue with the diagnosis. What do you think? What do you think is going to happen? They're not going to give take yeah. off the diagnosis. Damn it. You've, you've seen this movie before. <laughs> no, I'm not sure that that's what happened here, but let's see. But once you're put on a path for something in pregnancy, it seems you don't get to leave that path. Oh, I guess you were right. Just Shocking. Like, just like GBS. 
Yeah, if you had it once in your life, you're always positive. Or if you 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 had it in your urine at the beginning of pregnancy, or if you test for it, they don't they don't change that. Mm-hmm. Hmm. 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh, is it possible to reverse that diagnosis? The educator said that if you have to make dietary changes to fix blood sugar, then you are diabetic and are at risk for all the horrible things she was telling us about. <laughs> oh, God. This was the first time as a doula that I'd seen such scare tactics, and maybe it was all true, but it really was presented in a fear-inducing way. Used to convince someone to take a particular path in pregnancy. That's what I talk about all the time. Yeah, I had a client just this week. Skewing your counseling to mm-hmm. funnel the woman down a path. Mm-hmm. That you want them to take. Yeah, it's words right out of my, my mouth. All right, I work mostly. <laughs> your words are usually right out of your mouth, by the way. Well, they're right out of other people's mouths too. <laughs> right. Uh, I work. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're talking out of your ass, this I is, guess. This, well, uh, yeah. Never, <laughs> never. I never do. Mm. I work mostly in the labor and delivery department, and I've mostly seen great patient education and rapport. This was an eye-opener as to what my clients may deal with in other areas of their care. I've rambled through enough just to say, what's the scoop on gestational diabetes? How is it, how is it managed <laughs> out of the hospital? It's not over yet, John. We're, we're still going here. All right. He's cutting us off. Uh, oh, he's just watching Beyonce the whole time, I think. How is it managed, which is not a bad occupation, by the way, to just you spend your time watching Beyonce. How is it managed in an out-of-hospital setting, and what are the real risks? It's one thing to just do pass on data and studies to my clients about things like this. Entirely different when it's my daughter. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I, love- o- I always wonder about that when people are so rigid about, you know, doing, you know, inducing it this way and do- doing all these rigid things. And then when it comes to their own kid, do they actually practice that way? Right. Yeah. Um, all perspective get lost. When it comes to my daughter, all perspective gets lost. So I'm looking for a little outside perspective. All right. Perspective. That reminds me of. The movie Ratatouille. Did you ever see Ratatouille? <laughs> yeah, I love Ratatouille. I love Ratatouille. <laughs> not following I'll have you a, yet, but I'll have a little perspective. The, the, the waiter asks him, "What would you like for dinner?" And, mm-hmm. the, and, the, and the reviewer goes, "I'll have a little perspective." <laughs> and the waiter doesn't know what he means. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. So here's what I wrote to her, and then I want you to chime in. That okay? Oh, let's see. I wrote. Can you Dear, read? <laughs> yeah, dear Robin. Thank. I, I tried to keep my answer short because I said we'd talk about it. Thank you for listening for your and for your inquiry. We, we will discuss this in more detail on an upcoming podcast. So, pot, Robin, this is for you. For now, in the midwifery world that I live in, we now, with now normal fasting blood sugars and I presume postprandial ones as well, we would not be concerned. We would treat her as a normal mom, <laughs> keep her on a good, good nutritional and lifestyle, lifestyle path, probably not begin fetal testing until 41 to 42 weeks, no thoughts of induction as long as all else remained fine, not label her as high risk, I have strong thoughts on this, as you might guess. So sorry she's getting the anxiety treatment. Again, thanks for writing and listening. Yeah. Dr. Stu. All right. So Great. your take on this. So, well, there's a couple of things, right? There's there's her comments about um, the scare tactics, which is a topic, but also just s- speaking about how we handle gestational diabetes. I would also obviously keep doing her urine tests. And if we had her spilling sugars, then we might want to pay closer attention. Um, if the baby was measuring 
larger than we expected. I might I might continue to do um, have her test randomly to see how her sugars were going. Right. Um, and of course, keep to the diet that was working for her when she was testing. Um, and I, you know, for me, doing that diet diary with the with the numbers of testing postprandial and fasting, I feel it. What I tell my clients is it gives you you're so much more in touch with how your body is feeling when your sugars are off. And um, you get to pay really close attention to empower yourself in your own nutrition. And women who develop gestational diabetes in pregnancy are more likely to develop true diabetes later in life. And so this is just their overall health, like getting in touch with and being empowered and adjusting things for their overall well-being. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a distant early warning system about right. maybe how to change your lifestyle to eat. But the fact is, once, once you correct those things, does someone need to be carrying this label around? Because you know how they treat with adult onset, I mean, not a, a type gestational diabetes, not insulin requiring, is they're going to want to begin testing your baby early on. They're going to end up doing unnecessary testing. They're going to probably find something. They're going to want to not let you go beyond 40 weeks. You're going to probably get the induction thing. And, and uh, is there, I mean, is there any data to support that? I mean, the risk of, that people worry about with diabetes and pregnancies going overdue is, is a stillbirth. So what's the incidence of stillbirth in someone who's may or may not even carry the diagnosis anymore, but certainly is well-controlled? Yeah, I mean, once it's well-controlled, they are no longer, as you said, we just treat them as a normal pregnant woman. If she couldn't get it controlled and needed to have insulin, then I would say then that's when she's in a more high-risk category and should no longer be, you know, considered appropriate oh, uh, for uh, home delivery. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And, right. You know, it's, it's interesting, though. I, speaking of insulin, I mean, I've had two insulin-dependent diabetics who have absolutely wanted to have a home birth. I was with you on one of them. Right. right? Mm-hmm. And... We were able to do that for them. With we had backup plans in place. We had, uh, you know, agreements with the maternal fetal medicine people, and they knew that we were doing. And we also had their diabetologist to, if they needed insulin. But and it, re- it seemed like none of them required any special insulin drips or anything. You know, when I was taught about this in in residency, we had a person who was an insulin requiring diabetic. We put them on an insulin drip during pregnancy, and we were checking their finger sticks every hour, and we were adjusting their dripping insulin, stuff like that. And I realized that their insulin requirements often go down in labor. And so we were dialing down, dialing down, dialing mm-hmm. down. And the two people that I've had at home with this, um, both of them ended up getting transported, but not for diabetic reasons. All right. Oh, I thought we had one that stayed home, but. Who? I don't remember her name a while ago. Oh, I thought they both got transferred. Yeah. But anyways, keep going. They got transferred for other reasons. Yeah. And the, and, and the, the diabetes had nothing to do with, I mean, their blood sugars were not out of whack. Mm-hmm. So that it. So denying these people an option of a birth that they want simply because they have this diagnosis and this is how this diagnosis is always treated according to the uh, the American College of OBGYN birth algorithm, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, you know, everything is an algorithm. Everything is push, pushed down, uh, down a certain path. I, I mean, I, I could digress into stories about uh, babies that are on the small side. The other day I saw a patient yesterday who's whose baby was um, about five and a half pounds at 38 weeks, which is about the third to fifth percentile. Biophysical profile was 10 out of 10. They wanted to induce her the next day. Was she small stature? Was she Asian? It's her first baby. Uh-huh. She's Russian, uh, mm-hmm. first baby. And, uh, but, you know, it, it, we don't, I don't have any other data points, so I don't know what it was 10 weeks ago or six weeks ago mm-hmm. if it's been falling off the growth curve. But usually when babies are falling off the growth curve, one of the first things that goes is their amniotic fluid volume or their biophysical profile. This baby was perfect. 
right? But in Kaiser, the, 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 where she went, they have an algorithm that says, you know, it's potential as small for gestational age or IUGR baby needs to be delivered, period. Yeah, I had one of those. I had a Kaiser client that I delivered because they diagnosed her as IUGR. Was and that? was she? No, we, I brought her to you and we talked about it. She, yeah, she had beautiful delivery. Baby was absolutely nine out of nine. Perfect APGAR. Right, so she stayed, she ended up having her home birth. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So my question to you on what you just said about, you know, denying these women the, the opportunity to have a home birth, um, you're saying for someone like yourself, a doctor who could manage her care at home, not, not that midwives should no, be well, managing this No, well, I mean, right now, it's outside the scope of, of midwifery practice, but certainly, uh, uh, you know, I don't understand the, the rigidity. I guess they just don't assume that midwives are going to be responsible because why would... A midwife doesn't want to put her patient at risk, but why couldn't a midwife, in conjunction with an endocrinologist, take care of a woman at home? Why couldn't she do that? Um, I guess if they're on insulin, we don't we don't manage that kind of. The endocrinologist can manage the insulin. Oh, the endocrinologist would be at the delivery or on the phone. Oh, okay. I'm just saying that there are there are ways to do these things. If, if I'd the, feel if, more comfortable if you did that one. <laughs> no, but I'm saying there are ways to do these things if the if the drive to do them was there, but right. the drive to do them isn't there. Right. And then the one thing we worry about with babies with whose mothers are diabetic afterwards is the baby's getting hypoglycemic. So right. at all the deliveries, whenever we have suspicion of anything like that, we've always have frozen milk on on board, yeah. and we're we're prepared for that. So which is great, right? Yeah, donor milk. Okay, so I got to get I got to move on. All right, unless you had one more comment on that, because you you took a breath like you were gonna. Well, the only thing I wanted to say is that I saw this is completely separate, but it came to my mind um, is that you're always talking about how it doesn't make sense for us to put women in the car to go to the hospital when they're like about to deliver their babies. And I just saw a delivery on Facebook yesterday of a woman who delivered a 10 pound baby in the car. Yeah, I, I saw it. Did I didn't, you see I didn't, it? I saw the, the feed. I didn't click on yeah. the video. Though. I watched the poor woman was screaming bloody murder on her hands and knees and somebody was filming while driving. I assume it was her husband. And that was the immediate thing that came to my mind is like, you know, what, why, you know, it's so sad to me that this woman didn't feel comfortable just staying home. Yeah. You know, I mean, that would have been safer than trying to, to get to the hospital I've and said deliver that, this I've, baby in I've the said car. If my mother used to say, if I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start saying that to my kids. <laughs> what? If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times? <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, I, these women who call or, or who just feel like things are coming so fast, they should have the option of just staying home and we should have a system set up where somebody can come to them. And I'm not just saying paramedics should come to them because, you know, the paramedics are going to just want you to get you in the truck and take you to the... Midwives. Yeah. They yeah. should have uh, they should have a system of midwives or doctors willing to, willing to you know, go home, but go to the home. But it's, there's just, again, then you start, starts the algorithm risk, risk factors and the liability and all that other stuff that people come into play. Let's talk, let's, let's move on because we're going to get yeah. into this. Everything we talk about today sort of ties back to the same old thing where we're always intervening when we may not necessarily need to. Yeah. Are we becoming redundant? <laughs> or is this, is this the, the nail that needs us Dr. to Seuss keep hammering? Dr. Seuss podcast is never redundant. <laughs> okay. We may say the same, oh, same thing over and over and over well, again. Well, we have but, to, right? But, if I've said not, it once, I've said it a thousand times. We're not times. redundant. Okay. Yes. I resemble that remark. All right. <laughs> um, so the New England Journal of Medicine uh, put out a paper on August 9th called Labor Induction Versus Expectant Management in Low-Risk Nulipus Women. And I just wrote a blog on this, and you can find it again at um, uh, birthinginstincts.com on the blog page, and I recommend everybody go to read it. It's a short blog, but it sort of points out some of the 
the flaws in the in, in, in some of the arguments that are good and some of the flaws of the argument. Um, but let me just summarize here. The they looked at the prime and the primary outcomes. They looked well. First of all, they looked at six thousand women divided in two groups. Um, which interesting though that they had seventy three percent of the women who they asked to be in the study declined. But didn't say why. But they didn't say why. And I just it, it's really curious to me as to you know if you're if you've got seventy three quarters of the women you asked to be in your study decline. Is that not relevant as to say why they declined? Because they declined because no, I don't want to be meddled with. And if seventy three percent of women don't want to be meddled with, then why? Then isn't that relevant to a study that talks about meddling? Mm-hmm. They might not consider. I can. That's my word. They consider it to be something that may be advantageous, but you know, it is. You're still meddling with Mother Nature. Yep. Right. Okay. So the primary outcome was a, a, compa- a posit a perinatal death and se- or severe neonatal complications. Now, I've talked about composite risk before, and I talk about it in my little blog, that composite risk, while be- becoming more powerful, is often less meaningful because you're lumping together things like severe brain injury and a broken clavicle, all right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, uh, neuro- uh, p- late neurologic damage or something with the need for respiratory assistance, Okay. But nowhere in the paper do they define what the need for respiratory assistance means. Does that mean the baby needed respiratory assistance for 30 seconds or for three weeks? Mm-hmm. doesn't say. Mm-hmm. So if they, if they have to give the baby uh, some blow-by or if they have to give the baby a couple of breaths, does that count as respiratory assistance? I would assume it does. Right. And is that really relevant? Okay. But the reason they use composite risk is because individual risks never reach statistical significance. So they have to combine them. Add them all up, and then they can make a statement. But even even then, the two groups, which were women who were went into labor, uh, that were induced between thirty and thirty and five sevenths weeks, excuse me, thirty nine and thirty nine and, fi- and four sevenths weeks is the one group. Another group was allowed to wait, but by uh, forty and five sevenths weeks, up until forty two and two sevenths weeks, they were either allowed, they were either labored or they were allowed to be induced at that point. So a lot, of those, a lot of the control group, which is not really the control group, it's the expected management group, ended up getting induced as well. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the only thing they found was that the C-section rate in the, in, in the induced group was actually slightly lower at 18% than the expectant management, which was 22%. All right, now, those numbers, again, my partner Howie Mandel comes up with a really good point, he says, those numbers are significantly lower than the rates of C-sections in almost every other study involving inductions, especially in women with unfavorable Bishop scores, as 63% of the women in this study had unfavorable Bishop scores. So you're inducing women who have no medical problem with an unfavorable Bishop score, and you're only having an 18% C-section rate. Right. All right. So that, that, it, it, it's, it's not clear as to how that happened. Right, because that that's different than every other pa- every other paper. He points out also, my partner, and, and I've elaborated on this in my blog, that the normal rate of um, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, which is brain, which is a you know hypoxic brain injury, in uh, in low risk in uh, normal women is about two to three per thousand. Mm-hmm. It could be a lot less than that. There are other pa- how he mentions it's only like one point nine per ten thousand, but. I found in the NIH data it was about two to three per thousand. In this paper, in the in the induction group, it was five per thousand, and in the expected managed group, it was seven per thousand. 
So, but a lot of those expectant management groups got induced, but we don't know how many either. All right. Um, so why would the why do you have in a group of low risk women at 39 weeks have twice the risk of brain injury in this study? And that's not addressed. Mm, that's a big one. It is a it, it's a it's a very um, confused. I mean, it's one of those things that again, when you look at a study, their conclusion is that this may be a reasonable thing to do, and blah blah blah. But they don't get into the issues of why are we doing it, and why did seventy three percent of women not want to do it, and and why are your rates of injury a little higher than we'd expect? And the other thing that's not mentioned anywhere in the study, and I looked, I read through this thing twice, is how many of those women had epidurals and how many didn't. There's no mention of anesthesia anywhere in the study. Because the majority of them did. But I understand that it probably but, uh, but, should because it's a medication. Right. And is anesthesia linked to higher rates of HIE? I, you know, long labors. Long labors, we know, unfavorable cervixes lead to longer labors. Longer labors, we know, lead to greater chance of fetal acidosis. Mm-hmm. And maybe, you know, maybe they're in their, as Howie states, in their overzealousness to get a low C-section rate, they, they, for lack of a term, pitted the shit out of some of these babies. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. So the question gets back to the question of why did they pick 39 weeks? Why, why did three years ago they have this phony debate mm-hmm. between two guys? You know, a debate to me was always uh, two guys with different sides of the uh, issue, having a civil conversation about why their side is better. And then even in debate class in, in high school, right, you had, you know, you got scored on your presentation. But it, you would never have a debate class where both sides took the same side. Right. It's not a debate. Well, that's what happened <laughs> at this thing. And, it, and then since that time, just miraculously, there have been three or four papers now that support it. That support what the debate was about three years ago. You know, you have to be skeptical. Yeah, you have to be a, a, an idiot not to be skeptical, I think, mm-hmm. about why this happens. And so the reason that I could find that they, the 39-week thing came up is they say that that's the nadir of, of neonatal death. Um, it's the lowest at 39 weeks, which is actually not true. It's actually lower at 37 weeks. Yeah, I've always heard you say 37. It is, it well, it is. And even in, their gra- even in their graph, it's at 37 weeks. The interesting thing, however, is that they don't mention that. And obviously they say, well, 37 weeks. We've, we've already sort of told people they shouldn't be inducing women until 39 weeks because we're getting babies ended up in the NICU because of poor dating and stuff like that. So they, they've, a lot of hospitals have passed rules now that won't let even indicated inductions be done until after 39 weeks. So that in itself is, a, you know, if a woman has excellent dates and, you know, her husband's going to Europe next week, why can't we induce her at 38 weeks and two days? And the hospitals around here, some of them won't let, won't let people do that. Mm-hmm. So they, so they, they chose 39 weeks because that's a number that's acceptable, but it isn't the lowest rate of neonatal morbidity and mortality. Mm-hmm. And then it goes up after that. But as I've always said before, it doesn't go up. The actual risk goes up very small. The relative risk goes up higher, but we, we've talked about relative risk and actual risk Again, if I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. <laughs> All right. So I just I just want people to go and look at this, uh, look at what I wrote about this. And then I linked uh, on the Facebook page, there's an article that was written a year or so ago by Hensi Goer mm-hmm. um, in Science and Sensibility, where she looks at this issue before the New England paper came out, but obviously in response to the uh, quote unquote debate that went on 
in Washington, D.C. back in 2016. Mm -hmm. Thoughts? Uh, uh, This one's hard for me because um, I just you're just not going to convince me that science is better than nature overall. Like there are times, specific times when obviously nature um, would have eliminated this person or their baby, right? Like that, like people died. And so science has the ability for us to improve those statistics. But for everyone to be treated as if they are this high risk situation i'm never i'm just never going to get on board with that i just think there's too much lost not just well they're asking us to ignore the data that says that that inducing somebody for no reason against a a crappy bishop score is a bad idea and they're asking us to ignore that data and that's been the standard data for a really long time and suddenly they're saying no ignore don't look over there look over here Mm -hmm. all right but it's really interesting to me when you when when they how how researchers and academics do that sort of thing because now they want you to ignore all this data that's been around for a long time and look at their new data but when it comes to breach all the new data suggests that selected vaginal breach delivery is reasonable but everybody's still pointing to the term breach trial still ignore it right well i mean it's the same thing with all the midwifery statistics that are starting to come out it's like how many, you know, if, if we're looking at statistics and research and studies, how many times do we have to say that this will improve outcomes before someone listens? And it's, I just don't think that people are, are really actually wanting to know that information. I think they want to just support what they already feel. Yeah. 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 And then the, the, the paper in the New England Journal is followed by an editorial. And I just took a couple of interesting points from the editorial before we wrap this up today. Uh, this one, um, there's a quote here. This is by Michael Green. He, um, um, I'm not sure if what he, his position is. Obviously, he's probably at Harvard or, uh, and, and a very, probably a very credible person. But he writes... <laughs> Obviously. No, you know, you, it's hard to get stuff. The New England Journal is prestigious. It, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't doubt it. But, you, and, and it's, you know, I've been trying to get articles published. I can tell you, we'll talk maybe about that more in the next podcast, about the nitpicking of, you know, your abstract, 152 words, it has to be 150 words. Like, Why? take out two words yeah well it's not hard to take out two words but right. i'm just saying why yeah why why do you have that rule all right i mean if the abstract's better with 152 words or 167 words why can't it be why can't you have that mm-hmm. they have to have they have very very rigid rules and formatting and how you write your re- uh, references you have to use the, the certain like harvard yale blah 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 formatting for references mm-hmm. um and I don't know. I mean, it's just it's it's been it's been a long haul. I got some good news on that on one of those anyway in a minute. Oh, good. Anyway, so stay tuned. This guy writes: enthusiasm for routine elective induction has been tempered by concerns that the practice might increase the rate of operative deliveries, and because of deference to a perceived public preference for a less interventionist approach to the management of healthy pregnancies and full term. Okay. Now, when I read that, maybe I'm just reading that with my Stuart Fishbein little uh, cynicism in it. Mm-hmm. Okay, but he, he uses the word perceived. All right, think about what he says here. He says, because of a deference to a perceived public preference. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, is he saying that, that it's a perception, therefore it's not really valid? Or the perceived public preference is, well, I guess not, is is, is wrong? Why doesn't he say to a, to a, public preference that's been based on the data that we've given them 
You know, they, it just it's almost as if, you know, it, the, everything's being groomed here. Mm-hmm. Well, it's obviously an intentional word is what you're saying. I th- uh, yeah, I just yeah. I just feel that way. It's very mm-hmm. intentional. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then he goes on to say, um, you know, that there were 16,000 women that declined to participate. We talked about that. There were 73% that declined to participate. Mm-hmm. And then the participants in the trial were younger with a mean age of 23 to 24 years. Okay. So, you know, that's not a population that necessarily this will all apply to. I don't know if inductions work better in 23-year-olds than in 38-year-olds. I, I don't know. Maybe that's why they got the lower C-section rate. I, I, I really can't be sure. Um, then I get stuck in the weeds here. I'm going to skip that for a little bit. Then it says here, readers can only speculate as to why so many women declined to participate. And my, ask, my, 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 ask, my question to Dr. Green is, well, did they ask? Why? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did they ask the people why they weren't participating? Mm-hmm. And if not, why isn't that data available? If they did, why isn't it available? And if they didn't, why didn't you ask? Okay. Um, and then it says, if induction at 39 weeks becomes a widely popular option, busy obstetrical centers will need to find new ways to accommodate larger numbers of women with longer lengths of stay in the labor and delivery unit. Okay. More money. Okay. So let me ask a question. Here's another particular adjective that he uses. Widely. Okay. If the induction at 39 weeks becomes a widely popular option. Who thinks it's going to be widely popular? The people or the doctors that are getting influenced by these papers that are coming out? Because well, I can't imagine too many of your clients or my clients, or the, even before I started doing home birthing, where it would be widely popular of just saying, you know, oh, your body's ready, hon. We're going we're gonna to bring you in and, and deliver your baby now. You're going to have your baby today. Well, you'd know more about that than anyone in this room. <laughs> women, don't want, women don't want that. I mean, there's a, there's a certain percentage of maybe... Maybe lesser educated women who don't know enough to ask the question, mm-hmm. but educated women don't want that. And you don't think that if the doctor said, "Hey, there's this new study that showed that we're going to be able to not only save your baby, but we'll have a lower C-section rate if you just agree to do a, an induction now," you don't think that people would be like, "Oh, okay, I do." I think. Yeah. Well, if you if you tell them, but you tell them what the actual risks are. But they're not going to. Right. So I think he's. I think he may be right. I think with this kind of information that supports the way that OBs would like to practice anyway. You think right? it's going to be widely popular? I think it could be. With American women? No, not widely popular with the women, but I think that they may say okay if their doctor recommends it and have oh, a study I'm, behind I'm it. I'm sure their doctors can skew them, get women to do yeah. lots of things. They I do. just remember at this debate in 2016... Only 22% of people thought inducing at 39 weeks was a good idea before the debate. After the debate, they have these little devices in the audience. You get to push little buttons. And they mm-hmm. did the survey again, 70% of the doctors. Yeah. So they, they, they convinced 48% of people to change their, uh, their mind based on one little uh, sort of presentation. Yeah. Lastly, he says, um, this should reassure women that elective induction of labor at 39 weeks is a reasonable choice that is very unlikely to result in poor obstetrical outcomes. Okay, and then my question for the last the last question is, you know, th- what kind of outcomes are we talking about here? Are we obstetrical outcomes? Are we talking about the immediate? Because what are the long term effects on the babies born after a long pitocin induction prior to natural labor starting? You know, as my, Michelle O'Donnell used to say, it's the pre labor cesareans, or the you know even the pre labor inductions where those babies are the ones that are more likely to have problems. 
because they never got bathed in their mother's own oxytocin. They never picked their own birthday. Right. These don't, things don't ever in, enter into the discussion when, with uh, academicians. Right. And, you know, they're connecting Pitocin to things like postpartum depression. Um, we talked earlier, more hemorrhages, uh, breastfeeding issues. Um, and I, f- I find the C-section rate of 18% to be hardly believable because I don't know an institution in the in the country that has this 18% C-section rate and anywhere. W- and when I hear 18% C-section rate, you I still think, think it's high, but that's insane. <laughs> yeah. That's insane. It should be more like 5%. If we look at the statistics of when you leave women alone, what are the average statistics? Right. But then you'll have higher rates of adverse outcomes if you leave them alone, according to not if you look at midwives' actual results. Right, and not if you look at a lot of Who's, data. Why aren't we looking this is at just, that? This is just new data, but it's because it's new and trendy, it seems to be to catch on, which is, again, gets me back to the whole thing with the term breach trial and why that's old and fussy, and still people are quoting it. I'm gonna, in, a, in the next podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about the ACOG's breach guidelines. They came out with a new breach guideline, mm-hmm. and, and they're still mentioning the term breach trial in it. Yeah. and we'll talk a little bit about that so i leave everybody with the last thought of you know uh do we do these things because we can or should we do we do do, do we do these things because we should and just because we can do something doesn't mean we necessarily should do something agreed and ultimately th- they do say that this is a part of, this should just come into the discussion of of autonomy with the individual client one of the things they say at the end of the paper the last thing they say I can find it, is... Drum roll, please. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Do you have a drum roll sound? <laughs> yeah, he does, but he's, he's sleeping. Um, it says, th- this can be interpreted, incorporated in discussions that rely on principles of shared decision-making. Okay. Between patient and doctor. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to ask you one question with a straight face. Do we have principles of shared decision-making in most hospitals and institutions in the United States. No, just as our reader was talking about what she witnessed with her daughter, you know, there's a lot of skewed informed consent and a lot of bullying going on. So they're saying this data is supposed to be uh, integrated into the shared decision-making process, but everything about the current system makes it really hard to have shared decision-making. Because mm-hmm. doctors are under pressure from hospitals under protocols or policies not to do certain things. Doctors don't want to do certain things because it's inconvenient or in, not expedient for them to do it. Don't and get so, sued. And they don't want to get sued. And so they skew, their, they skew everything. So mm-hmm. there is no necessarily honest tenant of shared decision making. Yep. I agree with that. You do? I do. So you agree with me? <laughs> Most of the time. I know you do. <laughs> I know. That's why it keeps me around, because I, I agree with them. <laughs> well, Bliss, this has been Podcast 131. Uh, we hope our listeners have enjoyed it, and we hope that you guys will take the time to write us, contact us, share us, do that sort of thing. Yeah, we love the letters. Maybe, maybe send Bliss a little happy birthday note at bliss at, at com. <laughs> right. Uh, well, thanks very much again. So, th- thanks for listening. Uh, this is Podcast 131. We'll be with you with Podcast 132 pretty soon. Bye bye. Bye bye.